everybody. Welcome to a special bonus Friday interview episode of Learning the Tropes with our very special guest, Joanna Shoup. Now, Aaron did this interview solo because I was unavailable, but this interview is really awesome, very fun, and you got to check out Joanna Shoup's latest book, The Heiress Hunt, The Fifth Avenue Rebels Book One, available now wherever you can find or purchase books. So enjoy this great interview with Joanna Shoup. So this is your second book released in quarantine, is it, right? Third, yeah. actually. Third, if you count the anthology. Third? Yeah, if you count the anthology, oh. yeah, this is third. Um, so how has it been? Like, how are you getting used to the process of sort of like book tours virtually or is it has it? Um, it's actually been, hmm, it's been different. I mean, you know, writing is so solitary and sad and lonely and like, <laughs> you know, um, we really as creative people, and I was just talking to Diana Quincy about this the other day, because like, I, I haven't felt it until now, but I'm really feeling like the disconnect from actually seeing other writers in person and like sort of feeding off that creative energy. Cause that's a lot of what we do. I mean, we're at conferences and you know, you're just talking to other, you know, other writers and it just really seems to fuel your fire a lot. And I'm missing that. So at first I was like, Oh, this is great. Like I can do everything from my house and I don't have to, you know, I'm, I'm more productive that way. Cause I don't have to travel anywhere, but it really feels now like it's, more of a grind and very isolating and like I'm really missing face-to-face time with like people other than my family who I'm very tired of yeah I think that's a pretty common feeling right now I imagine it's just like I just want to see literally anyone else at this stage yes (laughs) um was so was the the heiress hunt the first book that you wrote during COVID or how did that work? Yes. And I wrote The Heiress Hunt during lockdown and um, switched gears kind of after I finished to do the anthology story for Duke I'd Like to F. And edits came back from my editor for The Heiress Hunt. It was like, okay, this sucker needs to be rewritten. So and that that is is rare for me. I mean, I don't normally have to sort of tear it down and and rebuild it, but this one had to be torn down and and rebuilt. And um that was a major process and then I went right from that into writing. Then I was behind on the next book in the series, which is The Lady Gets Lucky, which comes out at the end of October, so I was behind on that. And that I banged out really quickly and that was a really smooth um process. So yeah, The Heiress Hunt I wrote it twice during lockdown. <laughs> so. so three books during lockdown. Yeah. yeah. In, a, in an anthology. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us? I just finished it today. I loved it so much. It was beautiful. Thank you. I love the new port of it all. Um, but do you want to say a little bit of what it's it about? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, my books are set in the Gilded Age, um, which is like the late 19th century in America, in specifically the Northeast in, in New York City and Chicago and Philadelphia. And people always ask me, when are you going to set a book in Newport? I have I have to admit that I've never been to Newport, which is like a really terrible, <laughs> terrible thing for me to admit, considering what I write. 
but um I just I haven't been yet. I'm I think I'm I'm going to go in October for the release of the second book in the series. But so I thought, okay, I'll let's give it a whirl. Like I'll set a book in Newport and I just had the idea of I came up with a book title before I came up with the plot, which often happens in my brain. And um so I just thought it would be fun to do like The Bachelor set in Newport, but the twist is that the bachelor already knows who he wants. Like he's, you know, from the jump, he's um, all in on one woman, but she's engaged to somebody else. So that was sort of the premise. Um, Yeah, I loved it. And so what is it that you've been writing within the Gilded Age? You had like the 400 series. Um, What is it about that that attracted you? That is like sort of the, the well that you keep going back to. Yeah, I just, it's fascinating to me. It's such a cross, you know, it's a fascinating crossroads of American history. I mean, it's when the America that we sort of know today starts to take shape. I mean, you've got all the industrialization, you've got the concentration of wealth at the top, you've got all the immigration coming in, you've got um, the corruption in politics, you've got um, the failure of reconstruction. I mean, the, the, the groundwork of, you know, the railroads and the telephone and the telegraph, and then we get into automobiles. I mean, it really, it's fascinating. And I think more than any of that, what we see is the independence of women really take a giant leap forward. I mean, prior to the Gilded Age, you would have lived on a farm with your parents, you would have married a local farmer, you would have moved to a local farm, And it just would have been, that would have been your life. And in the Gilded Age, we see with the the offices and the department stores in New York City and the big cities, we start to see city living that's safe for women to move, young women to move in off the farms. They have places to live, they can earn a living, they can get around. So we really start to see women in, in public, in the workplace, Uh, just doing all kinds of like new and exciting things, which, you know, Maddie in the heiress hunt, I was like, sure, women's tennis, let's do it. You know, because in the the Gilded Age, you really start to see like professional baseball, professional tennis, professional golf, all that stuff starts to really um, happen in the Gilded Age. So yeah, no, I love it too. The Gilded, I think it's fantastic. I live in a brownstone that was built in like the 1880s. So I walk around here all the time thinking about just in an apartment, not the whole thing. I don't want to, too big of a flex, but, um, but yeah, I always walk around here and I'm like, what would they have been doing down here? Like this was, would have been the kitchen. So I'm, I always think about what they would think about now. Like what's in your walls? Like what's like, <laughs> like, I, yeah, exactly. It's like, what did these walls see? And just the amount of detail that was put into everything. It is, it is such a fascinating time in history because it really was the first time that it, it also seems to be the first time that people were really thinking about what it means to be an American versus in opposition to like British people or, or other areas. And especially like with the 400 and Mrs. Astor, what did, how do you create that stratification when you don't have dukes and duchesses and queens? Like, how do you decide what is society? Which I think is a really interesting question too. Yeah. And they it was all based on, you know, your ancestry, you know, being traced back to the Dutch, you know, the Dutch that settled the island, those people that 
could trace their ancestry back were the creme de la creme of New York society. And they really, there was a list. The 400 is a real thing. Like somebody really said, like, these are the, these are the, these are the people who are in and everybody else is out. And it didn't matter how much money you had. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't really based on money, which is just wild. Yeah, it was sort of what, what is your last name? And it, it, it does also expose just the silliness of society, too, because it's like, does it really matter that your last name is Roebling or Schmemmerhorn or something? Like, it doesn't, it, you see, it's all sort of made up. But yeah, I, I love that time as well. Um, What sort of researching do you do about the Gilded Age? Well, I'm lucky because I live, um I lived in Chicago, which is a great Gilded Age city. I lived in Chicago for like seven years so the whole like Wrigley, you know, the the Magnificent Mile, Wrigleyville, Old Town, like all of that is is Gilded Age history just everywhere you turn. Um, then, and department store history. I mean, there's all the great Marshall Fields and all that stuff that, that was in Chicago. And then I moved to New York, which, you know, and now I'm only 30 minutes outside of New York. So for like the last, I don't know. God, how old am I? I don't know. For a long, long, <laughs> for a long time, I have lived either in or in proximity to sort of Gilded Age history. And I just, um, my ancestors came through Ellis Island. Um, I've always just felt like this deep connection to both, you know, New York and um, that time period. So uh, I don't know. I just, I find it fascinating. Is there a historical figure from that time that you're still waiting to have show up in one of your books? Or? <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, I've written like a few in. I've written, I have not written Mrs. Astor in. I've certainly referred to her, but I haven't actually written her in. Um, her guy pal, Ward McAllister, who actually is supposedly the one that coined the term the 400, um, he, you know, it was rumored that he was gay, but he was married. Um, but he was her sort of partner in crime and was really sort of the arbiter of, of what was in and what was out of New York society for a long time. So he, I haven't written him on the page either. I've written like Teddy Roosevelt. I've written, I've written, uh, I'm trying to think what other historical figures I've written. Not many. I mean, I'm sort of afraid to, <laughs> to, I'm sort of afraid to take them on because a lot of them are, you know, larger than life. So one day, maybe. Yeah, there's okay, great. So there's not like one picture, like I'm just waiting to get Alva Vanderbilt in somewhere or something, but they're all just kind of existing. And she's fascinating, too. I mean, you know, going from, you know, forcing her daughter to marry uh, a duke two years later becoming a suffragette. I mean, she really is a fascinating person, but I, yeah, I don't know that I have, I don't know that I, <laughs> that I really have the um, wherewithal to take her on. I'm sort of intimidated by those real historical people. I feel an obligation to really, you know, do right by them. So I don't know, maybe someday. So like going back into sort of like romance, what was your relationship with romance growing up and sort of like what led you to start writing it? And did you write anything else before romance? Um, I, let's see. So I come through romance through my grandmother and my mother who are, I mean, that long line of romance readers through like the Johanna Lindsay, you know, uh, McNaught, Garwood, um, 
Woodowis, just that whole line. That's exactly where I jump in the deep end of the pool. And um, I uh, read romance way earlier than I probably should have. I mean, I was 11 or 12 when I started reading romance. Uh, I went to school. I always have been writing and I went to school actually as a journalism major. So uh, I've always been writing. I skipped many a class to finish a romance novel in college. Many a class. Uh, and then when I graduated, you know, my sis, my oldest sister kind of dared me to write one. And she said, you know, you read so many of these and you're such a good writer. Like, why don't you try, you know, and by good writer, I mean like, uh, non, you know, like not creative writing. That was, that has, was a challenge for me because I had never really done much creative writing. I'm very much like a literal by the book you know, who, what, when, you know, journalism mindset. And she was like, you know, you should try it. So uh, I was waiting tables at the time and I would come home and write from like 2 a.m. to like 5 a.m. and then sleep and get up and wait tables and do the whole thing um, all over again the next night. And, you know, in a couple months I had a manuscript that my mom thought was, <laughs> was pretty good. And, um, that book will never see the light of day for sure. Um, it re <laughs> side note, it was not good. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I had, I had a manuscript and, um, I put it under the bed and, uh, when I happened to meet the, my husband, the, um, when we were dating, I was at a job I hated and he was like, listen, it's killing me to see you just you know, come home from work and lay on the couch night after night. Like, is there, could, is there anything you might want to do that would bring you joy? And I, you know, I said, Hey, I wrote a romance novel and maybe one of these days I'll try to get it published. And I kind of thought he would laugh, but he didn't. And he has tons of editorial. Um, you know, he wrote, he ran a music magazine for years and he said, I'll help you edit it. Like, get it out. Like, let's try to sell it. And so he did. So I got it out and um, he helped me, you know, uh, polish it up. And, you know, from there, it was like, I found the, the romance writers of America. And, and then I was in really, I was really in it. So that's sort of how I how I came to romance writing. Do you remember what that first book was about? Oh, or what sure. You called it's, it? it's awful. <laughs> it is literally awful. It is a, um, it's a regency and the hero is like a naval captain. And she like, she's very big on like sneaking around and I, I, it's a mess. I mean, I'm sure I have no, I don't even know where it is, but I'm sure if I could find it, it would be horrifying. So. No, I think it'd be fun to go back, see how far you've come. And you still have a lot of sneaking in your books now. So there's something that kept, I think. Do I? I like sneaking. <laughs> Yeah. Listen, I'm not complaining about the sneaking. I love it. <laughs> um, when, do you have like a favorite trope too, right? Speaking of sneaking? I love enemies to lovers. I mean, if I, you know, that is, um, that, that is like a jam, a big time jam. So I don't always write it, but, um, yeah, I, I like to read enemies to lovers. So that's probably like my favorite trope. But I think if I could write every book as enemies to lovers, I probably would. But <laughs> I think, I think that would get old pretty quickly. 
Yeah, you have to move it up every once in a while. Yeah, well, something else that I always love about your books is that they're always, like, no heroine is an island. Like, I feel like there's always, she's surrounded by sisters or friends. Um, And I think as somebody who grew up in, like, the 80s and 90s, in all media, there's always just, like, the one chick. And I love that there's not just one chick in your books. Uh, So, like, how, is that, like, a conscious thing you do? or, Or how important is that for you to have in your novels? I think it's something that I've grown to, to, to appreciate and to do. I think um, my first series didn't, ha- didn't really have that. And I'm, I think Adriana Herrera, I've been listening to her talk a lot about this book and I can't remember the author's name, but it's the heroine's journey. And it's the idea that success is never solitary for, for heroines. And that has really stuck with me. Like, you know, none of us do this alone. We all sort of need our support system and like, um, you know, people in our lives to, you know, tell us when we're acting like complete idiots and, you know, all that, all that good stuff. So that for me, like, it's taken a while for me to see how important it is, but um, you can't really write, you know, an arc without showing a support system for the heroines, I think, you know, it's important to, to show it, I think, on the page. Yeah. And I think it, it is also nice because those moments of, I think as women, we talk about our things with friends and family. And I think that's the thing you can tell when it's, it always makes me sad when the heroine has no one to talk to, because I'm like, she's going through a big life event and she has nobody to just be like, girl, is this crazy? <laughs> like we all need that well right and then you're worried about her because you're thinking you know oh no is she you know is she making bad choices because she has nobody to tell her that you know the hero's an asshole I mean so yeah I mean uh so that's what I always think of is success is is never solitary and I think Mm -hmm. that uh that has stuck with me well that's interesting too you talking about how important it is also like it seems like you also look at romance writing as a bit of a team sport uh, in that, you know, you were saying how important it is to be around other authors and how you sort of get that energy. So I think that that all makes sense for sure. I, I mean, I just I don't know. I don't know how anybody could do it on an island. I mean, I you know like by themselves. I mean, I, I am so uh, reliant on that, like on the network of writers that are in my life that I just, I would be so completely lost without them. Um, and so on learning the tropes, it's a, a veteran, me, and then a virgin Clayton reading romance. Do you have a book that you recommend to people when they're like, Oh, you write romance. I've never read it. What should I start with? Oh boy. That's a good question. It kind of depends on what their interests are. I mean, um, I think uh, anybody wanting to wade into historical, you know, Sarah McLean is is such a great place to start. Um, you know, contemporary Christina Lauren is th- those are books I always recommend. Um, the you know some of the contemporaries that came out in twenty twenty were just fantastic. I mean, you had me at Ola, the worst best man. I mean, so many, um, 
fabulous like contemporaries uh, with the illustrated covers that I would recommend. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it really depends on what your interests are because the great thing about romance is there's something for everyone, literally. So, you know, um, if you're into aliens, you know, we got it. If you're into, you know, pirates, we got it, you know, whatever. Yeah, aliens and pirates, the the full breath. I mean, <laughs> um, what's the last book that you read that like you felt like really surprised you, romance wise? What's wild is that I've had vertigo for like the last two weeks, and oh, reading has been a nightmare. Um, like I can't read very long, and I have to read like much slower than I usually do. I probably shouldn't read, but I mean, who's gonna give that up? Um, uh, let's see. So the last book that surprised me, I just finished LaQuette's Jackson, which was really good. Uh, Texas Ranger saves the day. Um, but you know, she writes such strong heroines that, uh, this heroine did not really need much saving, um, which was great. (laughs) I just read, um, Nikki Sloan's The Architect which was fantastic. And that's a uh, male, female, male. And that was incredibly hot. So <laughs> that was like a little eye opening. But Nikki Sloan, you sort of expect that from her. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of read, I just I bounce around and I read so much and I read um, so widely. You would think I would have better answers for this, but <laughs> no, it's okay. It's also, it's like a big question to ask, I think out of nowhere. Um, and so, oh, I've been wanting to ask, have you watched Miss Scarlet and the Duke? Yes, yet? of course. Yes. Yeah. Because all I could think of was Justine the whole time from <laughs> oh, the Devil's really? Downtown. I like, sh- they'd be such good friends, guys. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. I mean, I really, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was um, very, you know, very entertaining. And it's, I mean, it's a romance. I mean, there should be more kissing, you know, it needs the Bridgerton, like, open door uh, sex scene twist, but, but I really enjoy it. I think it's, it's really well done. Yeah. Did, so what did you think of Bridgerton? I loved it. I mean, I wasn't sure what to expect when it opened. Um, I think it took me an episode to like really kind of get a feel and feel like, you know, um, like the pacing of it. Because mm-hmm. it's such, you know, it's, you know, the, I mean, we all know the, I know the books so well that it was wild to really see how they were going to chop it up and and make it into a TV show. So it was highly entertaining I mean just eye candy and you know delicious really from top to bottom I mean (laughs) I loved it yeah and hopefully I hope it ushers in more romance adaptations as well I think that was a thing I was like I just want this to be good so that then there will be more um and it like you know it's the most watched thing on Netflix so yeah but you liked it right yeah we liked it and, Clay- I, and Clayton I, did watch it or did not? We actually watched it together because we <laughs> spent the holidays together. And he's like a member of my family at this stage. So it so from Christmas Day, I think, and then three days after we watched 
we watched two episodes a day and then we did a podcast about it. We did a lot of Bridgerton content, which was fun because obviously they're great books. But then we were like a little bit like, I think by the last episode we were, it was a lot of Bridgerton. (laughs) 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 And I've thought too much about those people and I've talked so much about those people, but I am really happy that it came out as well as it did and it did seem to do a good job of like hitting those romance beats that you really want and there was all of those like like Daphne's on a feigning couch at one side and then Simon walks in with his shirt unbuttoned but still tucked in and it's like all right you did that for us yes oh and the the spoon licking scene you know the forearms in the boxing uh in the boxing scene I mean it's it's very much with the female gaze I thought you know um, they did a really good job. Give the people, yeah. give the people what they want. We need the sex. It's so funny that so many times when they adapt romance novels, they they take out the sex for some reason, or it it just they never really hit that tone. And I'm like, that's not the only reason we're here, but it's a reason. Like you have to give it to us. Some of the criticism that I've heard of the show of the series is like, oh, you know, why does everybody think this is a big deal? That you know oral sex is happening on the stairs or, you know, like they, and I don't think they get it that, that we don't see that kind of thing that often that it very much is usually from a male point of view or it's taken out, you know, that it's really a big deal that they kept in so much of it and that it's so centered, you know, from the female gaze. So is there another another series other other than your own own that you're hoping gets adapted? No. I mean, I would love to see all of yours as well. I mean, my go- my goodness. I mean, Sarah McLean's Bare Knuckle Bastards would be great. You know, um, her books are so cinematic and so gritty. And uh, let's see. Um, I would love actually Susan Elizabeth Phillips's Chicago Stars. I mean, that's like, I don't know if you've read them. I mean, that's they're like real old. Uh, have you read any of them? Like yes. it had to be you, nobody's, baby, nobody's but baby, but mine. Yeah, that whole. Those are wild. Wild. <laughs> wild. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. I that's a good question. I mean, because there, there's so many good, um series out there especially like the you know the long-running ones like the penny royal green and and uh the hathaways i mean you guys have done tons of clapis content so the hathaways you know any of the the lisa clapis books would be great i'm both terrified and very excited if they were to adapt dreaming of you because i feel like i would it'd be so well if they're not casting tom hardy i mean i feel like all of Romance Landia is already disappointed. So <laughs> I know we've already casted every anyone who's listening, guys. We already got it done. We just need to find a Sarah. Right. <laughs> Derek Craven. Um, we have to say his name once an episode or we uh, get fined. Fine. Or you lose oh. list you lose listeners. They're yeah. not sure what they're not sure what they're listening to if the name Derek Craven isn't mentioned. Exactly. <laughs> um you mentioned before that you come up with titles before you come up with stories. How early, you know, because you have always done these series. So, like, is in writing the first book, do you know, okay, this is, she's going to be number two, she'll be three, four? Absolutely. Or, 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the Uptown Girls, I knew I wanted to go sort of in order of age, you know, because it's very much the Schuyler sisters from Hamilton set in, you know, meets the age of innocence. So I knew that, you know, we sort of have to start with Angelica, you know, then we get to um, Eliza and then we get to poor little Peggy. So um, I, yes, I always have, I always know sort of who's, who's going where um, before I, before I start. I don't always know the book title. I'm writing a book right now that I don't know what the title is. Um, I don't like to do that because it, it's a little murky for, it's a little murky for me. And it gives me in the back of my head, I have a little bit of agita about not, about not knowing what the title is, but, uh, it'll come eventually. Like, does it just come to you as you're like wandering around or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, you know, when I was in lockdown, I was, um, you know, thinking of, book titles. And for some reason, I, you know, I read a lot of the, uh, the DILF trope of the, the like the DILF romances. <laughs> for your favorite trope. Yeah, that's one of them. I have many. <laughs> that Mafia, DILF, uh, Enemies to Lovers. So I was reading a lot of these, you know, really spicy DILF stories. Um, and I was like, I would really love to write one, you know, like a historical version. And then I was, pl- I was thinking of the, you know, the words and I was like, Duke, I'd like to F like, has anybody written that? And then I went to Amazon and nobody had. And I was like, okay, this is like, a, a, I need to put like a flagpole on down. I need to like claim this territory. So that's, I mean, that literally just came out of nowhere. That's great. I love that. The heiress hunt is so good, but I always have to think of how to say it because it's a silent H and then an H. So I'm like the heiress hunt. (laughs) Well, you could say it with a Cockney accent and then maybe then then there there would be no H, right? At all. That's how Craven would say it if he had to. (laughs) Um, What made you decide to have Maddie be a champion tennis player? Because I was thinking as I was reading the book, I'm like, I don't read many athletic heroines in historicals. I think for kind of obvious reasons, but what what was that sort of drew you to that? Um, I uh, love sports. I actually went to school uh, for sports journalism, and I my dream was like to work at ESPN. So I'm like, uh, I've always been super athletic, and uh, I wanted to write actually a historical baseball series. Um, which I pitched and they really just felt like historical baseball was not, the world is not ready for historical baseball romance. So fine, fair enough. So then I started thinking, well, I'm going to get baseball in somehow. And I was trying to kind of put a, what is that? Like a square peg at a round hole or whatever. Like I was trying to make something happen that was not organic and it was just not working. And so I actually took out the baseball and um, I had wanted to write, you know, she kind of started out as a female baseball player. Like she was, cause there, there were uh, these incredibly successful female baseball players in the late 19th century. And so I wanted to make her a pitcher and it just was not working. And um, I really wanted to keep with sports because 
you know, like I said, I mean, it really, um, especially tennis, because that's kind of, it was really kind of an upper class pursuit. Um, people had more money in the Gilded Age. So they were, you know, the middle class is now able to go to baseball games. They're able to, you know, play sports because they have more leisure time. So um, I just felt like it was a little boring to make him like the sporty sport guy. So uh, I thought it would be fun to make her uh, athletic instead and really like pursuing this dream of becoming you know, what we would consider today a professional tennis player. I love that. And I disagree. I would 100 read, like, I would definitely read a League of Their Own Gilded Age romance series. I think you should do it. (laughs) (laughs) Never say never. I mean, I I would tell them they're wrong. I yeah, I mean, I would love to do it. I mean, it's there are so many fascinating women who played on male teams who were very successful. There are some that are, you know, not not household names that we would know, but uh, yeah, I mean, women women played baseball long before they played softball. So, I would I would love to do it. Never say never. A lot of this, or the first half of this book, pretty much takes place at the house party in Newport, um, and you have Maddie organizing games every day, and. I loved that the prize for one of the games was either a Tiffany necklace or bracelet. And that was, I I found that so hilarious because it is also showing like the level of wealth that like where we would be like, here's a coffee mug. They are like, here's a Tiffany's bracelet. Yeah. And that's, that is historically accurate. I mean, there were many, 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 many uh, dinner parties and events hosted where, where you would leave with, you know, the gentleman would get like a cigar wrapped with a hundred dollar bill or the women would get like a Tiffany bracelet or I mean, that just there that is absolutely of the time. I mean, it's crazy amounts of money, crazy amounts of money. So um, I try to work in that like bonkers, <laughs> that bonkers level of wealth anytime that I can. You'll see in the second book, but the second book, you know, the, the woman that that uh, one of the heiresses is like, I don't even, I don't need that. I don't need any ju- more jewelry. Like I've got jewelry I don't even wear. Like I don't even, I don't need to compete. It's interesting to think about, I mean, not to get too into today times, but it is interesting to think about the Gilded Age and then sort of what's happening now with income inequality, how it's kind of repeating itself. Like, is that something you've- It makes me both- um, fascinated and horrified. I mean, it is so such a parallel to the late, I mean, from the restrictions on um, immigration, you know, the xenophobia, uh, the, that was, I mean, rampant in the Gilded Age. Um, restrictions on, you know, women's uh, reproductive issues, uh, the corrupt politicians, uh, voting, you know, restrictions on voting, um, the, the wealth concentrated at the top, the, um, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So I, it's like, I really honestly fear, fear for, you know, what's sort of coming down the pike because, you know, we see, 
really what what brings all this to a head is you know the great we have the first world war and then we roll right into the great depression so hopefully his, yeah, hopefully history does not repeat itself certainly not with wars and uh, you know we already are in a bit of a depression but i think yeah th- those bubbles always burst too and i was thinking about that today because it's like you know reading the the era's hunt and you know just a general fascination of the golden age it's like why do i like love reading about these people a hundred and 40 years ago, but the people today, I'm just like, it's so funny how time and space can really um, change your perspective. You don't want to read about Elon Musk and <laughs> somehow, somehow no. Jeff Bezos. And I don't even, I, I mean, yeah, no thanks. Hard pass. Yeah. I was watching a documentary last night all about this like great art fraud that happened. I want to watch and that. People were, the, uh, you have to see it to believe it. You have to believe it to see it. Um, it's really good, but it was also, this guy was so angry because he had been sold a $16 million painting that wasn't real. And I was like, oh, I don't care about the stakes of this. Like, good for her. (laughs) I love this for you. Right. (laughs) If they're willing to pay 16 million, then it's worth 16 million. It's, it's, it's just funny how, how history does repeat itself with like just these, this extreme stratification of wealth yeah and it's a total disconnect from reality yeah and you also in the gilded age you had all of these strikes and the women's strikes and lawrence and lowell and stuff and how that comes too but people are are constantly surprised again and again which i find really funny interesting i guess not funny but yeah i mean it's both interesting and sad is there a place in new york you know because you mentioned like new york is so gilded age and so much of our architecture is still from that time that you like to go to or that you've missed? Oh, goodness. I mean, um, my kids have all of their, they're not Gilded Age related at all, but my kids have like their favorite, you know, spots in the city that they're like dying to go back to. I miss probably like wandering around Central Park, you know, just like soaking it in. Um we normally go at the holidays, they do like an outdoor holiday uh, bazaar at, um, you know, they do it in Union Square, they do it in Bryant Park. And we usually always do that. We didn't go this year. You know, uh, ice skating, you know, that kind of stuff. Just, yeah, we didn't, we didn't do any of it. So I have not been into the city. Yeah, since, since, I mean, I, you know, the trains are running, I could go if I wanted, but um, I don't want to. So I haven't been in a year. What are you reading now? I just actually got from my local bookstore um, A Curious History of Sex by Kate Lister. Um, That's a nice big, big book. book. This is a, there's a lot. That's hefty. <laughs> there's a lot. I of, love it. A lot of sexual history in here. <laughs> so this is like going to be my, that's like my current read. Um, uh, it came very highly recommended. So... Is it just like throughout history, like just like people's reaction to sex or like what kind of a... It's like a history of contraception and like, yeah, and like, you know, um, all kinds of like photographs and uh, about aphrodisiacs. And I mean, it's really, um, it's fascinating and sort of like the, uh, how people felt at the times, you know, the what's the word I'm looking for, but you know what I mean? The, the, uh, ideals of the time, like. Awesome. So the Eris hunt is out 
March 9th. So it's out by the time this goes up because we'll probably put this up Friday. Right. What is what is time? (laughs) It's a flat circle. That's what we learned from True Detective. (laughs) Indeed it is. Awesome. And so how can people find you? I'm online. Um, JoannaShoop.com. Joanna Shoop on Instagram. Joanna Shoop author on Facebook. Um, I'm around. Joanna Shoop on Twitter. You have a Facebook group too, don't you? I do. I do. Um, the Gilded Lilies is is, is what they're called. Yeah. And then I'm also in the League of Extraordinary Historical Romance Authors on Facebook, which is me and, uh, you know, 11 other like outstanding historical authors. So that's fun too. All right. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah. I was so funny when I was emailing with your publicist and then she was like, would you ever want Joanna Shupan? I was like, yes. <laughs> I'm such a fan. I listen to you guys all the time. Oh, do you? that's so nice of you to say. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, was laughing because when you guys talked about Prince of Broadway and Clayton was like, I didn't like it because the character's name was Clayton and he did things that I myself would never do. <laughs> I was like, okay. I don't know why you didn't take that into consideration when you were writing it. it seems like a misstep. That is like maybe my favorite comment ever about one of my books. <laughs> he did like it. And that was also one of those books too, where he came in and he was like, can you believe this guy? He did this, this, and this. I, I hate it. And I'm like, Clayton, he's you. Like he holds a grudge. I mean, I didn't like, I, I don't usually listen to, I don't read, try not to read reviews and I try not to listen to things. But like, I, I remember just like tuning into the very beginning of that episode just to like see like, you know, kind of what you guys thought. And then, you know, I pieced out after that. But, you know, because it gets embarrassing. <laughs> but no, I don't know how people, when authors tell me that they listened, I get very nervous because I'm like, oh, we're, we're never going to trash a book. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I I try not to ever listen or read reviews or because once it's out of my head, it's not for me anymore. That's a really healthy way to think. Yeah, about it's it. not yeah. it's not for me. It's out in the world. It's whatever people interpret it as. But I did think it was funny because his name was Clayton and the character's name was Clayton. You know, anyway, that yeah. that was what made me laugh. I thought that he would like it for that reason. And he did it. like he did like the book, though. You stopped listening, but it, the the criticism he, he totally came around. <laughs> no, which he, it's totally fine. Well, and I know that the tunnel scene is one that whenever people are like, "What's the sexiest scene you've read?" That's obviously what we both say. Oh, so. yay! That makes me happy. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus Friday interview. Now, if you want to find us, we're on Instagram at Learning the Tropes on Twitter at Learning Tropes, and we have the Facebook group, Learning the Tropes Troop. So join that, and until next time, happy reading.